Um, my first question is, is my, there was a sense in America that there was something particular about Trump and tr Trump supporters. Um, and yet you're seeing exactly the same thing with regards to leave and remain. So it doesn't appear to be Trump specific or American specific. What is the overarching theme that why this uh, anti-conservative viewpoint has taken such hold uh, right now? What, what is it about the timeliness that's affecting the entire Anglo-Saxon communities? Well, I actually don't think it's so much about right now. I mean, some of the papers that have looked at uh, political discrimination in the academy and even more widely in society go back to 2012. Um, political discrimination is, is higher amongst educated people. It runs equally in both directions, but it's just a question of when you have a skew of 10 to 1, the political discrimination of left against right really has a massive effect and, and, and creates a self-fulfilling feedback loop that, that makes the academy more and more homogenous. Um, I don't actually think Trump and, and whatever he's saying or doing actually made that much difference to the picture. Uh, we see some of the previous papers pre-Trump found discrimination in grant bids and, and, and hiring that was kind of in the 40, approaching 40% range uh, against the right as well. So it's not a new thing, and my survey took place certainly before the Capitol riots. Um, I don't think this is Trump-specific. I think it's much more deeply rooted than that. And uh, do you think things are going to change, or is this the future? I mean, um, you talked about the government being able to cut fines and violations, but that also assumes that the government will do it uh, or that the, um, the academia will listen. Do you, do you think it's over that the academia will remain hard left and g gather steam? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, it's not that they're bad people, but I just think people are going to go with what's comfortable and, and you know, where, where their biases are. And again, it's not most academics, but it might be 40% or in some cases higher. Um, one of the points that I really make in, in the Wall Street Journal piece and in, in the other pieces is that the time has long since passed for believing that this is a fad, that it's going to fade away, that somehow the universities will reform themselves. They won't. Speech codes uh, were instituted in the late 1980s. That's now We're now on into almost four decades of people writing books complaining about, about this problem. It's not going to fix itself. It's only getting worse. And in fact, my data suggests the younger generation of academics under age 35 are twice as intolerant, twice as supportive of uh, moves to sort of dismiss controversial professors as those over 50. So we've got a growing and not a, not a fading problem. Uh, it is absolutely vital that governments proactively uphold uh, academic freedom through measures such as the British government's, which is going to be really the world leader, I think, on this, although we see action at state level in the U.S. and Iowa and, and South Dakota and, and Arkansas and many other places. I think some of these state-level bills need to be more focused and principled, uh, focused in academic freedom, um, and, and coming from that principle of upholding the law and giving academic freedom primacy over emotional safety and other rationales which should have lower priority. Uh, but this is going to take government. And this, there are people who think, oh, no, the marketplace will solve this problem. It won't, not, not in a sector like the university sector, which has strong network effects and legacy effects. I'd like to ask Casey Mulligan to jump in. Casey, um, when you decided to join the Trump administration from your professorate at the University of Chicago, uh, how did that go uh, with your colleagues? Is there something extra special about the economics department at the University of Chicago that was more tolerant? Um, what was it like when you returned back to the academic community? What, what is it like being a conservative and a Trump supporter uh, in an academic environment? 
Oh, Larry, you're putting me on the spot. Are you going to put this on the internet? That's what I always do. <laughs> I, have, uh, I mean, there's a strategy, but I don't want to say what it is because this is this is my livelihood for the rest of my life, Larry. I don't want to <clears throat> give away my tricks. But th this was thought from before I ever left Chicago to visit the White House. I thought through this and and knowing where I was going to come back and what assets would I bring with me to uh, be able to thrive in an environment like that. And that you know, in general terms, that's what I did. I wanted to ask Eric about, actually about the University of Chicago. I mean, we've seen in academia in the past discrimination against Jews. And that went on for a long period of time. And, you know, the Ivy Leagues were openly, you know, prohibiting uh, tenure from, from Jewish faculty. And what happened in that case, I think, but you, you should speak on this, was a competitive process. And so Rockefeller formed a university in my city where uh, we did not have that bias. And we, we gobbled up the Milton Friedmans and others um, who the Ivy Leagues were not accepting. And, you know, the, the rest was history. And uh, MIT did some of that as well. Um, so can a competitive process um, help us into the next phase of this? Um, I th well, I would... I guess argue slightly back on that that I think the sort of decline of anti-Jewish prejudice more broadly in American society, uh, you know, across many spheres, you know, the universities were part of that movement of, of kind of liberalism. I guess I guess I would see that as the more pro, you know, more powerful force. I guess in bringing down that uh, that barrier. But I, I think there there could be some role for. Uh, you know, let's say that the universities controlled by the red states um, all have academic freedom prioritized and those in the blue states have emotional safety prioritized. You know, over time, perhaps the kind of name brand uh, recognition of the Harvards and the Yales and the Stanford, I mean, maybe over time those things are going to weaken somewhat. And as people realize, the, the, the cutting edge is in the kind of red state universities. But I, I kind of think that's such a difficult process, given all the advantages and the endowments and, and reputational advantage networks and all these other things. I just think it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> so I would be very skeptical that, that much would change. Uh, and again, I think part of the, the thing is I don't think we can sacrifice another generation uh, to self-censorship as we have, have already done. I just think it would be wrong to do that. I think it's kind of, I think another approach is necessary and it's not going to be popular within uh, the universities amongst many staff, but I think it has to be recognized. I mean, when the U.S. federal government went and desegregated the southern universities, I'm sure that wasn't, you know, that was against the wishes of those universities. It was violating their autonomy, but it was the right thing to do. This, this is sometimes the case. You have to sometimes violate uh, the autonomy of institutions to, to, to liberate individuals. Uh, you don't want to do it too much, but sometimes it's necessary. I think we're at that point now. I want to bring uh, another speaker, David Weil, into the conversation. Uh, David, you were a member of the Obama administration and, and then afterwards headed back to academia. Um, was you know, your being in the Obama administration considered problematic uh, to the academia, academic world? And now that you're the dean of a public policy school, um, are, do you feel there's discrimination against conservatives in any way? And what are you doing to hire uh, people on on the right. Well, I I have a a very different view on the whole 
topic than I think we've heard. Um, I think one person's view about uh, exclusion of voices under the current system needs to explain the fact that we've had an exclusion of many other voices for long periods of time in the history of this country in academic forums and others. And I think what we're seeing is a long evolution to deal with that, uh, that academia is trying to become more inclusive of multiple voices, just not just one set of voices that has dominated not only academics, but uh, business and government. Um, that's what this is a long-term, a much longer-term evolution of, in my view. Um, in terms of serving in an administration, um, I think in my current institution, as in institutions I've taught in the past, um, there is a value to coming in with a, a perspective on how public policies are set and made. And I think um, it's been my experience of people who have served in the Bush administration, as well as in the Clinton and Obama administrations, particularly if you're teaching in a school of practice, that um, that's valued. Um, it allows us to say things. I would imagine Casey comes into back to Chicago uh, with a different perspective on how you get things done in Washington. That certainly was the case for me. Um, and I think that in any institution, regardless, uh, provides some value to, to students and to colleagues. Eric, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, I guess I, <laughs> um, I think it's fair to, to, to look at your race and gender representation uh, and seek to sort of broaden that. I, I mean, I don't really have a problem as long as it's done in a, in a liberal way. What, what really sort of jumps out, however, is the fact that uh, the efforts that are being made in that department are not, at, there is no effort being made actually to try and politically diversify the university uh, professoriate. In fact, um, a lot of universities are, in fact, leaning into an explicitly and overtly progressive uh, ideology and agenda, um, which is actually chilling things even more. Uh, they're, they're permitting um, the hunting down or, 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 or sort of persecution of those who've got views that are deemed to be in some way um, making people feel unsafe. So I think really what, what I'm seeing is, uh, you know, I, th I think you can certainly ensure uh, you can try and pursue diversity in one, one realm. That's fine. But I think just sort of referencing history as, as, a, as a way of sort of dismissing the problem of political diversity is a bit of a diversionary tactic. I think really if we're serious about diversity, we've got to be serious about political diversity as well. Uh, and it's just not consistent to pursue one form of diversity and close your eyes to, to other forms that, that are not being addressed. And actually, the, uh, if you want to look at the professoriate, I mean, the political um, uh, lack of representation is much more glaring now than, for example, the racial or gender. Um, and, and yet, there is absolutely no interest in this problem. I wanted to bring back uh, some of the comments that Paul was making earlier about uh, working class issues uh, and immigration specifically. Um, I know, Eric, that you've done a lot of work on uh, public views on immigration and, and change over time. And I, I, I mentioned that the House this week passed a, a very um, liberal immigration position, uh, giving citizenship to millions. Um, from a political standpoint, are you surprised uh, that the Biden administration went so quickly uh, on a very pro-immigration bill, and uh, what do you think it means um, for politics, both domestically here in the United States, and how it'll, uh, similar issues will bear in in the UK? 
Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, because, um, as, as Paul was saying, you know, the, the nature of the intellectual left has really shifted from class to uh, sacralized identity categories focused around issues around race, gender, sexuality, and, and immigration is an issue that's sort of uh, you know, adjacent to race, at least in the minds of many progressives, and therefore it you know, partakes of this sacred holy quality, and therefore it's a sort of key priority. Um, and so it's not surprising that narratives like abolishing ICE and, and, and not deporting anybody and so on is, and, and you know, the, the sort of having a, you know, a multiple appeal process that allows people to more or less just disappear into the American society. I mean, that's, that's not particularly surprising. I think what, what's going to be interesting is then how this plays out because the majority of the American public, including uh, most members of minority groups, are not in favor of, of essentially that kind of an open border. I mean, I don't say it's an open border, but it is a, a de facto. When you have a kind of system where people can disappear into society after turning up to a hearing, it's kind of an open border. And I think what will what will happen is this issue, this is the issue that launched Trump's primary bid, so it essentially strengthens the, the Trumpist forces um, on the right, and it'll strengthen support generally for that message. Um, and I guess the question is how long that the identity left part of the Biden uh, coalition can can keep the pressure on to maintain this, frankly, quite unrealistic and, and, and this policy that's not representing uh, the country. If they are successful in kind of keeping Biden uh, on this track, it's simply going to increase support for the Republicans in 2022 in the midterms and, and strengthen the hand of the Trumpists uh, within the Republican coalition. So, yeah, and, and, and more than that, it'll lead to a kind of, again, more polarization, uh, you know, which, and we're seeing similar trends to some degree in Britain, but I think it's more intense uh, in the U.S., and it'll continue the, um, the shift of politics from the old economic left-right to the new kind of open-closed cultural politics of immigration and, and, and wokeness. And this, these are going to be the, the issues that the Republicans, I think, are increasingly going to, going to campaign on. Larry, can I, this is David Weil, I, I have to comment on that. I mean, I think that is a complete mischaracterization of the Biden immigration policy. I think that's a characterization of it. It's a, the Biden policy is a recognition that we have had uh, an open, we have had immigration policy that has benefited the economy and the society for a long point in time, and we need to adjust our immigration laws in light of what has happened. Um, and the best example of that is the bipartisan coalition that is coming together around agricultural immigration reform, where you have a lot of businesses, and I dealt with these businesses uh, as in the Obama administration, who understand their reliance on an immigrant workforce to uh, basically harvest our fields and the need to treat those uh, workers within the laws of our land. So um, I think it can paint with broad brushes, but I don't think it, it accurately portrays what this administration or the president has said on this regard. Well, yeah. well I mean, I don't disagree entirely with, with a, you know, if you want to have a, 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 a program to bring in temporary workers to harvest and so on, and, and it's orderly and, and it prevents people from, from, you know, falling into the hands of coyotes. But I think if we're talking about incentivizing uh, either, you know, asylum-seeking and, and illegal immigration at the border, um, most of these claims are not going to, to make it, in, you know, they're not going to be granted, but yet there is no mechanism for deportation and for 
ensuring that people who are rejected sort of leave the country. So it is a de facto system. It's a kind of moral hazard that, I mean, if I was in their shoes, I'd be doing the same thing. I certainly do not blame these individuals who are coming to the border. I mean, it's, they're doing a very rational thing. Uh, but I, at, it's a bit like, you know, at some point, there will the only way to sort of remove the incentive is going to actually be to, um, you know, to have more border security and a smoother deportation regime and, and, a, and a quicker uh, turnaround time on, on adjudication of cases. I, I just don't think that you can send signals that were that are going to incentivize more people to come without having these other uh, safeguards in place, and it just doesn't seem like there's a seriousness on border security uh, in the current administration. Now, I mean, compared to the Obama administration, I mean, the Obama administration did have that seriousness, but I think the Overton window has shifted in a way that that you know, compared to the Obama years, some of the things Obama did and said are no longer acceptable by party activists. So I just think that's a, you know that until that is solved. I just don't see how this cannot flare up into a bigger political issue. Eric, just following up on um, as immigration applies to the UK, um, one of the big reasons for Brexit was to limit immigration from the European Union to Britain. Uh, Brexit is now fully implemented. Have we seen a radical change in the number of new immigrants? I understand that COVID obviously uh, reduced travel. But what is the public response to that? Um, well, I think the numbers from Europe have gone down, and in addition, the sending countries are not sending as many uh, due to demographic maturity. And, and, and so I actually don't think the EU inflow is going to be – I think that's a, that issue is finished uh, for good, I'd almost say. I mean, I can't say that 100%, but – uh, increasingly, the sources have moved to other parts of the world, um, to non-European parts of the world. But of course, COVID has dampened down the the immigration. And uh, but I do think this issue is going to return uh, once COVID, you know, as COVID seems to be fading out, and the economy comes back, uh, foreign travel and air air travel increases. I think we're going to see this issue coming back on the agenda, and I think it's actually going to threaten the Conservative Party more than, I think, I don't think Labour is in a strong position in any case, but I think the the rise of this issue is going to actually be a problem for the Conservatives because a populist right, it opens space for a populist right party to come in because the numbers really haven't fallen. They may become less European, but the, the, the aggregate numbers, there's no indication the Johnson government has done anything to or will be able to do anything to, to reduce that. They may, they may actually, if they see a threat coming uh, from the populist right, they may start to act. Um, but yeah, that could be an issue in Britain, but not, it isn't one now because there's very little uh, immigration due to COVID. Eric, thank you.